Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. If you could look down from the International Space Station, what would you look at? This week on Naked Astronomy, we discover Earthcast, a system that could let you point a camera down from the ISS and integrate your social media world with images from space. And we'll get a glimpse of a star as it explodes, getting the first evidence of its chemical composition. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, if you could point a camera down from space, what would you use it to look at? A new platform called Earthcast could make that a reality. I met up with Scott Larson, Earthcast's co-founder and president. Earthcast is, um, I mean, it's two things. One is, is we're putting two cameras on the outside of the International Space Station, and we're going to have the world's first live streaming video platform of Earth from space. And the other thing is, actually, what, what do we do with that data? And we're going to take those images, and we're going to stream them online in as close to real time as we can get, which is anywhere from a few minutes, maybe up to a couple hours. We're quite familiar now with seeing satellite images with things like Google Earth and, and similar projects. What's different with Earthcast compared to Google Earth? Uh, the thing about Google Earth, of course, is that the images are, are static and they're kind of old. Some of the images may be up to, up to four or five years old and maybe even, maybe even a little more than that. Uh, what we're doing at Earthcast is, is we're going to have a web platform and you go there and you'll see a live image of Earth from space. So then you type in your address and you find out when it was over your house every week for the last year. So you can click on all those videos and then, uh, and then create a change detection type image. So you can scroll left and right to, um, to see how the house changed over, over the last year. At the same time, we know where the space station is, so you enter in your address and it's going to be above you in 5 hours, 59, 57, 50, you know, 56 minutes. You walk outside and you time your outdoor event around when you'll be imaged from space. So your wedding, you get your buddies in uh, white shirts on a green field spelling out I love you, outdoor social events, football matches, things like that. So there's obviously a huge range of things you can do with this. How are you actually getting these images? Is it existing camera technology or have you had to develop something new? Yeah, so what we're doing is we're working with the folks here at Rutherford Appleton Labs who are making two new cameras for us. These cameras are going to be given to the Russian Space Agency. They're going to take them up next fall, install them on the outside of the space station, and then give us the downlink. So these cameras are mounted on the outside of the space station. Two cameras, one's what's called a push-boom imager, and it takes about a 50-kilometer swath, and it just kind of sees whatever's in that image, and it's pointed directly down. If you're within that 50 kilometers you'll be imaged. If you aren't, then you're going to have to wait till next time. The other camera is on a pointable platform, and it's an actual video camera, which, which you can't get from space right now. And the video camera will do about one meter resolution, 
and we can target it. So if you imagine the space station coming in, the first camera is just, just taking a picture of whatever is right below, and the other camera we can point up ahead. So if we want to target on downtown London, as an example, and we focus on downtown London, it'll take about a five-kilometer by, by about three-kilometer field of view target, and it'll stay focused on there. And it'll stay focused on there as the space station flies across the sky. So for about 60 seconds, we'll get video of inside that, uh, inside that field of view. And there's, of course, lots of things going on every day around the world that are, are frankly, newsworthy and, and interesting. You know, the orbit of the space station kind of determines what we're going to be able to image. But if it's, uh, if it's close and we can point the camera over, then certainly we'll be able to actually pick out these targets. But if there is a, uh, some type of environmental situation, uh, some type of outdoor social event like the demonstrations in, uh, in the Middle East earlier this year, we'll be able to pick out those types of things. And then we'll be able to stream them, and it's exciting. Getting data down from the ISS isn't quite real-time. So you say this is a live stream. How live is it? So it depends on where you are, but you're absolutely right. It's not, but there's actually two components to live. One component is how old is the image. Uh, Space station goes around Earth about 15 times a day, and there's these antennas on the ground. So the two cameras record, record, record. They see an antenna. They drop down the data. They then record, 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 drop down the data every time they see an antenna. As the data comes down to Earth, we collect it, process it, put it into the cloud for storage, and then stream it online. And depending on where you are and depending on where the ground stations are will determine how old is the picture. And it might be anywhere from as recent as five minutes up to maybe a few hours. You said the resolution of the, the movable camera is down to one metre. What does that mean for, in terms of, of standard language? If I were looking at the image, would I be able to see myself or my house or maybe my car? I mean, that's a great question. And um, different things determine... Uh, actually the resolution. Essentially what we mean is that you'll be able to see anything that is, uh, um, is 1.1 meters big. So you're not going to see an individual. Uh, you will see your car. You will see your house. You will see bushes. Google Earth actually is about one meter resolution. So the types of images, images you see on Google Earth when you're over a city and you focus in, which uh, isn't people, certainly not going to see the person doing the gardening in the backyard, but uh, we will see stuff you know, slightly bigger than that. You're obviously getting a lot of support from the Russian Space Agency in order to to make this happen. What benefit do they get from it? Space is changing a little bit. Uh, And in the past, of course, uh, all these space agencies have had unlimited budgets, uh, massive amounts of engineers, and they could kind of do whatever they wanted, basically whenever they wanted. Things are slowly changing these days, and there's a real move towards making space a little bit more relevant. And then how do we get some goodwill out of it? Certainly the Russians are looking for data of Russia. And that's uh, key number one. Secondly, though, is they're, is they're looking for some goodwill and they're looking for some PR. And all space aid, all government agencies are in kind of the same category. They want to justify their existence. And so uh, when you get to space, there is a movement among the space community to have to justify their own existence, all space agencies. And uh, I think they fit into that category. So obviously there's data that can be collected. Is this also going to be given to scientists you know, there are other satellites up there right now, and the other satellites are taking uh, images of Earth that are probably actually better than the types of resolution that we have. The issue, of course, is that uh, those satellites cost several hundreds of millions of dollars, upwards of a billion sometimes. And if you're spending 500 million pounds on a satellite, you can't give away the images. You have to sell them. You just have to get some of your money back. If you're spending much less than that, which is what we're doing, 
then in fact we can actually give away those images and we can stream them online and we can let people in education and environment, we can let people take those images and uh, make applications and utilities around it and they're going to do whatever they're going to do with it. I mean, our job is to figure out the space segment, figure out how to get the data down, figure out how to get it online, and then make the online experience as compelling as possible. Other people are going to come up with things to make it more relevant based on the fields that they're in, and then we're just going to open up the API, let them do it, and then we're just going to see what happens. One of the nice things about Google Earth is the way that it's been to use the phrase, mashed up with other things. So you can see tweets that have geographical data that turn up on Google Earth and Facebook comments, and people will leave comments about their favourite restaurant or perhaps one they don't like. Can we do something similar with Earthcast as well? Yeah, certainly. I mean, basically what you're going to be able to do at Earthcast, of course, is get the geo-referenced map. We're going to tie in other content, other media uh, that has the location attached to it, Facebook, Twitter, Yelp, check-ins, things like that. And we're going to allow people to create their own media and upload that to the platform. So if someone is inside inside the Sistine Chapel, they take out their phone, they record it, they upload that to the platform. So the next time someone types in Sistine Chapel, they not only get the top-down view, but then they also get the local view. Another example might be in Egypt in the demonstrations earlier this year. So uh, people were, were uploading those videos. Uh, so not only do you get the local view and you hear the people chanting and yelling and the demonstrations, it's very intimate, uh, but you can only see the 100 people that are around you. But you upload that to the platform. The next time someone types in demonstrations Egypt, they not only get the top-down view showing the million people, but they get the local view. So the goal is, of course, is to image everything. And people will upload pictures of the house, the buildings, schools, churches, everything. We combine that with a top-down view, and then we sync those two up, and now you actually have some content. And presumably it's not just images that you could link. You could, for example, put Wikipedia links in there, so when you zoom over the Great Wall of China, it's one click away from telling you all about its history. Yeah, certainly. So that's the educational aspect, right? So schools will tie this into, into education. We then tie in other, other content, Wikipedia-type content, history, news, media, social, culture, politics, music, audio, tie in audio like that. Uh, when you get current live information like that, there certainly is a social aspect to it. So the cameras are in development here at the Rutherford Appleton Labs now. When do we expect to see this up in space and beaming these images down? Yeah, so the cameras are in, uh, in full engineering mode. Uh, they're, I'm working on the flight models right now. They'll be done sometime uh, next spring. We have to do some integration. We have to integrate it with other hardware. There is an engineering timeline, and then there's also, uh, frankly, the launch to the space station. Uh, the Russians are, of course, the only way to get up there now, and they go up every uh, 8 to 10, 12 weeks, kind of depending on, on supplies and, and people and the schedule. So, so the time frame is uh, sometime next fall, and that'll depend on engineering and launch schedules and just kind of how things play out, but uh, certainly sometimes towards the end of next year. Scott Larson on the opportunities presented by the new Earthcast platform. Now let's join Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford to catch up on this month's space science news. Well, I really do have to start with Kepler-22b, which is the news right from the beginning of December about a planet in orbit around another star other than our sun. And this is the planet discovered that yet most looks like our Earth. The star it's in orbit around is quite similar to our sun. It's what we call a G-type star. It's just slightly smaller and slightly cooler. And it lies about 600 light years away in our galaxy. And the planet itself 
We reckon it's about two and a half times larger than the Earth and it goes once around its host star every 290 Earth days, which means it's actually quite a bit further from its host star than many of the planets that we've discovered. It's slightly closer to its sun than the Earth is to ours, but because the star isn't quite as bright, its light output is less than that of the sun. So what this basically means is that this planet lies in the what we call the habitable zone for that star. It's a part of the planetary system where if you put a rocky body there, you could have liquid water existing on the surface. It's not so close to the star that any water's bored away. It's not so far away that the water's frozen. And assuming it has an atmosphere, the estimate is that the temperature, the average temperature on the surface of this planet would be around 22 degrees C, which sounds very pleasant to me. But I mean, that's a big assumption. If it doesn't have an atmosphere, it's going to be down to something like minus 10. It could also have an atmosphere with a runaway greenhouse effect. and It could be a few hundred degrees. We really don't know because we don't have any information yet about what it's made of. So it could be a small rocky core with either a liquid or a gaseous surface. We don't really have much information yet about its mass. We reckon it's more massive than the Earth. So even though it's only two and a half times the size of Earth, we reckon it's somewhere between 10 and maybe 35 times the mass of our Earth. Later observations will show this. So far, the only information has been deduced from observations of transits when the planet travels between us and its star, and it just casts that little silhouette periodically when it crosses in front. This was observed with the Kepler Space Telescope, which we've talked about so often, and lots of backup observations from ground-based and other space-based telescopes. And it's hoped that following this up very soon, they'll be able to get measurements of its mass, and we'll learn a lot more about Kepler-22b and how similar it really is to the Earth. So this is obviously quite an important discovery. It's quite new. We haven't really seen earth-like planets very often before are we expecting now to see more yes this is probably just the the tip of the iceberg it's the first of the candidates there are over 2,000 candidate planets from kepler and of which about 200 we reckon are about the size of the earth this is just the first one where the follow-up observations have shown that and we can reckon there'll be many more to come in the next year so obviously a, a wonderful opportunity to learn more about the planets that are out there, but at 600 light years away, it's still not somewhere that we're going to go and visit anytime soon. Not in a hurry, no. <laughs> Dominic, what have you seen for us this month? Well, this is the strange case of a comet which passed very close by the sun, so close, in fact, that it passed through the sun's outer corona, and which was widely expected to break up under the influence of the intense heating that close to the sun. But in fact, it survived despite spending perhaps up to an hour in what we might call the outer layer of the Sun. Now, this comet, W3 Lovejoy, is a member of the Kreutz group, which is a family of comets which come very close to the Sun and which we've been seeing roughly one every few days over the last few years now that we've got spacecraft pointing at the Sun to observe the Sun's atmosphere. And these are often incredibly bright comets because they're coming so very close to the Sun and they're being heated so very intensely. This one, for example, was about as bright as Venus if it could have been seen with the unaided eye. In fact, of course, because these comets are always so close to the Sun when they flare up, they're almost invariably impossible to see from the ground. Now, often these comets do break up. We think many of them are quite small, and so they don't have much survival chance. It seems that this comet was probably rather bigger than we thought it was. We thought it was quite a big one to start with, about 100 metres across, as compared to about 10 metres for an average Kreutz family comet. We think this comet might be up to half a kilometre across 
given that it survived this encounter. So where do these comets come from? They're obviously quite a short-lived family of comets because many of them don't survive their encounters with the Sun. So we think they must have formed relatively recently. And quite possibly there was a comet in around about the 12th century which broke up into lots of pieces. And what we're seeing here are all of these pieces, one by one, falling in towards the Sun. And, and some of them die on each encounter with the Sun. And probably in a few hundred or a few thousand years, this family will have completely been eliminated from the solar system. So this encounter has told us something about this comet and potentially about this family of comets. It's also given us a probe of the gas in the Sun itself, because as we saw this comet fall in towards the Sun, you could see how its tail was behaving as it was colliding with the solar wind coming off the Sun. And so we could see something about the gusts of wind that were coming off the Sun at this very close distance to its surface. At the moment, of course, our main way to sample the, the wind coming off the Sun is only to look at the wind that's coming towards us and the, the very few satellites that we have out there that are looking at it. So does this mean we can look at the winds coming from sort of the other side of the Sun, or certainly round the sides, as it were, and get a better picture of what might be happening in three dimensions rather than just in this fairly narrow core pointing towards us? Well, many of these observations were made with NASA's stereo spacecraft. Now, this is a pair of spacecraft in an orbit around the Sun, very similar to the Earth's, but one is slightly ahead of the Earth and getting further away, and the other one is slightly behind the Earth and getting further away. And it's like having two eyes. You can see a 3D view of the surface of the Sun, and you can see these flares coming off, off the Sun, and you can measure how far that gas is away, and you can really get a wonderful picture of this gas coming off. When I think of the Sun, I think of that, that big orange disc. And I know that if you look at it in, in different types of light, certainly the, the UV view of the Sun is very different. When we say that this has gone sort of into the surface of the Sun, what do we mean? Do we mean the edge of that orange disc or is it something that's defined differently? Now, it's quite difficult to define exactly what you mean by the surface of the Sun. When we look up in the sky and we see an orange disc, what you're seeing there is called the photosphere which is the point at which that gas gets so hot that it becomes opaque to light, so you can't see through it. Now, the layer that this comet passed through is called the corona, and that's what you see when there's a total solar eclipse, and that very bright orange disk is occulted, and then you can see the much fainter emission around that orange disk when you're seeing the emission from what you might think of as the atmosphere of the sun. And Andrew Ponson has been keeping an eye on the scientists themselves. Well, I've been looking at a paper by Rupert Croft and Matthew Daly at Carnegie Mellon University in which they're trying to get a handle on how much we should really trust our measurement of so-called cosmological parameters. Now, this handful of numbers describe our universe, and it's numbers like, for instance, how much matter on average, is there per cubic metre? Or how fast is the expansion of the universe currently going? Or how much dark energy is there in the universe? These, these kind of numbers that we can't just get out of theory, that we can't just uh, calculate what those numbers should be. We actually need to go and measure them in the real universe. And, and people have been interested in doing that, of course, for a long time. Each of these numbers can be estimated in various different ways. 
And what these researchers have done is they looked over the past 20 years at how various different estimates of these numbers have come out. And, of course, over that time, both the raw data from which the calculations are being made and the methods that are used to make the calculation have improved a great deal. What's of particular interest here is to look at what we call the error range. When we make an estimate of any of these things, we quote one of these error ranges. And what that's saying is that we haven't got a perfect measurement. So we're trying to say in a rigorous way what range of values would be compatible with the results of a particular study. What the new paper is doing is going back over the past 20 years, compiling a list of, as near as possible, all the measurements that have been made of these numbers, along with the quoted error range, and then taking an overall look at the way our knowledge of these numbers has improved. What they find is that if they look at something like the expansion rate of the universe, then the quoted uncertainty or, or error on that has actually stayed more or less constant over 20 years, which is strange because actually the, the accuracy with which different studies agree has dramatically improved. So if you look 20 years ago, different groups were saying that the expansion rate was anything between uh, 50 and 100. Uh, the units in which we measure this are kilometres per second per megaparsec. So it's anywhere between 50 and 100. But individually, they were saying that the margin for error on their results was only sort of plus or minus 10. So they started off being inconsistent even once they'd taken into account that they didn't have perfect measurements. And over time, that disagreement's gone away and, and uh, different groups now typically agree that the actual rate of expansion is more like 70. What that's saying is when people made estimates of errors 20 years ago, they were being massively over-optimistic. But there's an even more interesting result if you look at something like the density of dark energy, which is something that people are very keen to measure at the moment, well, the disagreement between different people's results, you actually find that it's roughly four times smaller than you'd expect if you look at the quoted uncertainty. Now, there are many possible explanations for why that might be, but one slightly unnerving one is that we're looking at a, a human bias. There's an understandable tendency for humans to, to want to get results that agree with previously announced figures. And that could account for why everybody seems to agree so well, even though there's such a large uncertainty and therefore you should expect people to be disagreeing more. That's certainly something to keep an eye on because we have to be careful that we don't end up wandering into a wrong view of what's going on in the universe through a sort of groupthink effect where we're all doing studies and trying to find results that agree with our colleagues. And we'll be back with more science news later on.
This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come we'll find out how watching a star as it explodes can tell us about the chemical composition of a supernova. But first, it's time for a couple of your questions. Jeff Maguire wrote in to ask what the latest technique used for detecting neutrinos in real time is, and I put that to Andrew Ponson. Neutrinos are really elusive particles. They've got barely any mass and zero electric charge and that makes them really challenging to detect actually but occasionally a neutrino will interact with matter and when that happens it can produce a charged particle that's something like an electron for instance or something more exotic like a muon now those kind of charged particles can be detected and they're detected in various different ways One of the most popular ways is through something known as Cherenkov light. Now that's where a charged particle will emit the sort of light uh, equivalent of a sonic boom as that charged particle travels through uh, a dense medium. So for instance, uh, water is a suitable medium and an experiment known as the Super Kamiokande experiment uses water as a medium both for neutrinos to slam into the water and produce these charged particles and then for the charged particles themselves when they're travelling through the water to emit this Cherenkov light and that light can then be uh, picked up with uh, what are called photomultiplier tubes um, and those are essentially really sensitive uh, tubes that can, can detect light. So it's, it's quite a complicated chain of events. But it's even worse than that because charged particles will be coming into these experiments all the time. Things like cosmic rays will be coming through the instrument and also uh, nuclear decays in uh, the material surrounding the experiment will also create charged particles. So somehow you have to be able to distinguish between the particles which are produced by neutrinos versus those that would have been coming through the experiment anyway. And the way that's normally done is by shielding these experiments. First of all, you put them underground to shield them away from as many charged particles as possible. But also you typically will surround them with um, an outer layer. So if we go back to the case of Super Kamiokande, there's an outer layer of water around the experiment, which is also monitored. So if there's any charged particles coming in from outside you can tell they've come in from outside because they also make a flash of light in that outer layer of water. Whereas if a neutrino comes into the uh, innermost part of the experiment, creates a charged particle there, it leaves no trace at all in the outermost part of the experiment. Uh, And so you only see the flash of light in the innermost part of the experiment. JP in Johannesburg wrote in to ask about the International Space Station. Is there a reason why it inhabits the particular orbit it does? Carolyn Crawford takes this one on. The ISS is in what is known as a low Earth orbit and it averages between about 270-450 kilometres above the Earth's surface. It can't go lower than 200 kilometres or else you get the risk of it being slowed down by drag with the atmosphere, frictional drag of the atmosphere. And it's not directly above the equator. One of the key things is it not only has to be easy to reach, it also has to be easy to reach from where we launch spacecraft. And this means not only from the American launch pads, but also now very particularly from the Russian launch pads, which are based on the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And you have to think about not just 
the ease with which the spacecraft actually get to the station, but also where these spent uh, fuel capsules, so the fuel rocket tanks, will land. They've got to have a stretch of uninhabited land underneath them, or uninhabited areas anyway, and this really limits which way you can launch the rockets. So the main thing is it's got to be easy to get to. Now you may think, and indeed the question goes on to ask about why not what's known as a geostationary orbit, where it's hovering above the same point above the Earth, so it's got the same night and day. Because the thing about being so close to the Earth's surface that it's whizzing around every 90 minutes, that means it completes about 15.7 orbits every 24 hours. It's travelling at 7 kilometres per second, huge speeds. The problem is, if it were to be kept directly above the same point above the Earth, it's got to be a lot further away from the Earth. There are these simple laws of motion, gravitational motion, which means that objects that are orbiting at a greater distance have a correspondingly longer orbital period. So if you want that orbital period to be as long as 24 hours to match that of the Earth, it's got to be 36,000 kilometres above the Earth's surface and a lot more inaccessible to all our spacecraft. So though it may seem strange and, okay, inconvenient for the astronauts that they're going around quite so fast and experiencing so many days and nights. There's a lot of sense about having it easily accessible and that's the main driver about the orbit it's in. And Dominic Ford takes this from Rockhopper. He asks, has the Earth always spun on the same axis? Well, it's always in the recent history spun about the point on the surface of the Earth that we call the North Pole. There are actually relatively few processes that can take the vast lump of rock that is the Earth and actually set it rotating about a different axis. You can have earthquakes and so on which move small amounts of rock and will affect that rotation by perhaps a few centimetres in the case of a very severe earthquake. And there are longer-term processes like the melting of ice sheets that cause large transfers of material around the surface of the Earth and they might move North Pole by a matter of metres. But that's not something that you're going to really detect in your everyday life. There is, however, another phenomenon going on to do with the Moon, our close neighbour, which is continually exerting forces on the Earth. It's generating the tides, and those tides are in fact gradually slowing down the Earth's rotation. So days are gradually getting longer, not changing the axis, but changing the rotation speed. And the other effect that Moon has is it's pulling on one side of the Earth more strongly than the other. And the Earth is not completely spherical. It's got a bulge around its waist, the equator. It's a bit smarty-shaped, although the bulge is less than a smarty, obviously. And over the course of thousands of years, the Earth wobbles back and forth around that bulge. And that means that although the North Pole is at the same point on the surface that points to a different place in space. And at the moment, obviously, it points towards the North Pole star, Polaris. But every 170 years or so, that point will move by about a degree across the sky. And so Polaris has only been the pole star for a few hundred years. And it's moving away from the pole, and in a few hundred years, it will no longer be the pole star. So if you look, for example, at astronomy texts written by the ancient Greeks, they would say there is no pole star because Polaris was a good few degrees away from the pole and, and it was no different from other stars.
So it really takes something quite dramatic to cause the axis itself to shift. I understand that Mars has Olympus Mons, which apparently has actually tilted the planet itself just by moving the mass around inside the planet. Yes, now Olympus Mons is a very much bigger volcano than anything you would see on the Earth. I think it's three times higher than Mount Everest. Yeah, that will produce a significant and detectable effect on Mars's rotation, but but not to, for example, drastically change its rotation axis by many degrees. More of your questions later on. But now with a roundup of exciting news from the Royal Astronomical Society, here's Robert Massey. Well, is it, is it ever not an exciting time in astronomy? But there's really a lot going on at the moment. One of the big things uh, we've been looking at the Royal Astronomical Society is whether our Earth is special or not. Now, I suppose anybody living on Earth would say, yes, of course it's special. We live here. It's a very comfortable place. It's it's an incredibly diverse uh, world in terms of the, the number of different li- uh, life forms, uh, plants and animals and fish, etc., etc. But there are real questions about whether it's uh, rare or not. And, of course, the problem with a discipline like this, with understanding whether having intelligent life is is rare or not is that there's no other data we've never found any other intelligent life in the universe despite uh, the uh, eccentric uh, fantasies of some people who believe they've been visited by aliens unfortunately that's almost certainly not happened and so we don't have any way of confirming or or, uh, refuting this very idea but having said that there are plenty of researchers who are working on this whole concept who are sitting there saying well you know what are the factors that make the earth particularly habitable and not just habitable for short periods of time but long enough that you can have evolution that we can end up with uh, human beings and doing the amazing things we can there is some suggestion that our solar system is is quite unique the way that the planets appear to have moved around when we see planets elsewhere we see these these hot jupiters very close to their parent star that may just be a consequence of the way that we're looking for planets but we haven't really found certainly very many solar systems that are like ours so far it's fair to say that we found no other solar systems that are like ours we uh, there are planets that are in the right place around their star for for water liquid water to exist on their surfaces if various other factors are taken into account and most recently the kepler mission found Kepler 22b. These worlds don't get named, I think, until we can actually see them more clearly. And that is going around its star in the right way, but it's still much bigger than the Earth, and it's really very unlike it. It's very similar to the world that we live on. And and that said, there are also uh, many other examples of solar systems or planetary systems where there's nothing like an Earth-like planet yet. Now, it may well be, to be fair, that these things are quite hard to detect, that we have to wait a few more years for missions like Kepler to pick them up and, you know, they have to do that by watching for the dip in light of the star as the planet moves in front of it. If it takes a year to go round, like our Earth does around the Sun, then you may have a, several years of data needed before you can confirm that they're there. But at the moment, we're not in the situation where we've quite found that, that twin Earth yet. Despite occasional media reports that suggest we have, we haven't found anywhere we could really go and visit with any comfort at the moment. Scientifically, we really should discount Earth because with a sample size of one, we can exactly. obviously not not get anything statistically significant on there. Can we look to our nearest neighbours and say, well, we know that there are other planets a bit like Jupiter around, therefore, and try and extrapolate out from the history of Jupiter that we're aware of, how that would affect their local environment? We, we found other worlds like Jupiter, well, I, I'll say like Saturn in size, we don't know whether they've got rings or not, but uh, like Uranus and Neptune, so gas giant worlds. Uh, we found uh, worlds that are somewhat bigger than the Earth and probably rocky. We just haven't been able to see things as small as the Earth quite yet. So what we can say is that 
planets around other stars are very, very common. That you know, I mean, interestingly, this this, this was completely unknown until the early 1990s when the first one was found. But now we have more than 700, which is why when planets around other stars, exoplanets are discovered, they don't, they don't make the news anymore simply because they're so common. But what we're really looking for is that uh, it's almost like one of the holy grails in astronomy, if you like, you know, not just finding an Earth-like planet, but finding one that could support life too. And, and we're not quite there, but I'm, I'm fairly confident that we'll get there within the next decade or so. Uh, but statistically, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing solar systems which don't look quite like our own. The challenge really is to find something that, that that is a bit closer, or perhaps we have to rethink things and say, well, maybe, you know, you can have a different kind of setup. You can have, say, a much smaller star, like a red dwarf, which is cooler than the sun, lives a lot longer. There are various uh, disadvantages about living around a star like that. But you might get a world that's a lot closer in, um, which takes advantage of this so-called Goldilocks region, is just in the right place where you can have water, and perhaps you can just have life developing there too. There's obviously still lots of work to do, but lots of exciting opportunities ahead. Moving on from planetary science to something much bigger, there is apparently an enormous cloud of gas about to be hoovered up into our central black hole. Tell me more about this. This is a, a really dramatic event. Uh, the European Southern Observatory uh, telescopes down there in Chile have detected a cloud of gas that's in orbit around the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. Now, I should say that almost every galaxy appears to have a large black hole in the centre and they may be very important for helping the galaxies form. The one in the middle of our galaxy is the equivalent of four million suns in mass. So it's, it's, it's big, but then I could... In contrast, the, the most recently we found one that was 7,000 million suns worth of material. So it's it's fairly small by the standards of the wider universe. But nonetheless, it holds on to a lot of material around it. And uh, there are images of stars whizzing around it at high speed, pulled around by its, uh, its very strong gravitational field. Now, uh, what the ESO astronomers have found is a cloud of gas going around it that is actually heading into the centre of the black hole. Now... When you uh, think about the way this works, it, it actually will go into its closest approach in a couple of years' time, probably uh, maybe at 18 months' time, in mid-2013, and odds are it'll just be torn to pieces. Because when you get very close to a black hole, what you find is that the the, for, the gravitational force closer on one side of an object is much stronger than on the other side. And if this were you or I, by the way, we'd go through something called spaghettification, where the, uh, the force on our feet is much, assuming we're going in feet first, is much stronger than on our head. And so we'd uh, we'd become very elongated, temporarily a little bit taller and taller, and then unfortunately uh, be torn to shreds in the process. And that's what's predicted to happen to this gas cloud. So there's a great deal of interest in watching it happen, because... I think it'll be the first time that we've actually seen in such detail something falling, well, not quite falling into a black hole, but being torn apart by one. Can we use the observations that we will get to test theories based around how black holes actually work? There are obviously lots of interesting relativistic effects that we expect to see, like the fact that realistically we should never really see it cross the event horizon because of the changes in time that are caused by having such enormous gravitational force there. So are we going to be able to use it to actually test some pretty basic physics? Well, as I understand it, it'll move into the, the accretion disk around the hole. So presumably we'll see the material join that um, it'll be torn to bits we'll see some flares of x-rays or it's quite likely we will as material some of the material heats up as it goes in and certain so, equally about half of it is ex 
expected to be thrown out again. That tends to be what happens, or it's predicted to happen anyway when objects uh, go into the vicinity of a black hole. I don't know how close we'll see it get to the event horizon. The the closest approach to the crowd is about three times the, the distance from the black hole to its event, or 3,000 times, sorry, the distance from the black hole to its event horizon. So we may not see anything quite that dramatic. But watch this space. I mean, I think it's, it's an exciting thing to watch, and simply because we've never seen anything like this before. And speaking of things to look out for, what should we expect to see in the night sky coming up over the Christmas, New Year, early January period? Well, we've had uh, something of a dry spell in the world of uh, meteor showers, actually. They're within the the odd flurry of things. But actually, if you're prepared to stay up very late on the uh, evening of the 3rd through to the morning of the 4th of January, and ideally, by the way, we're talking after about half three in the morning, so let, let's hope it's not too cold and you uh, look up, you should be lucky enough to see the Quadrantids meteor shower, which can be quite dramatic. Um, I should explain that meteor showers are when you get flurries of material coming into the Earth's atmosphere. They're generally very, very small, but they come in at such speed, they burn up, the air around them gets superheated, and we see that streak of light that you're familiar with as a shooting star or a meteor. In a shower, you just get a cloud of this stuff, and so we see, rather than seeing one or two meteors, you see perhaps uh, 60 in an hour, and that's the sort of rate you're looking at with the Quadrantids. You need to stay up very late because unfortunately until about half three in the morning at least if you look at the times from london it's slightly different further north the moon's still in the sky and that will the light of the moon is so bright that it tends to wash out a lot of the meteors so you don't see very much but if you're patient if you get up say at four o'clock in the morning and take a look you've got a couple of hours of, of a really dark night left actually probably more like more like three hours uh, you should be able to see some meteors so it's a good time to look out for it And I think the thing that that many people don't necessarily realise about these regular meteor showers that we go through is that they're pretty much static in space and it's actually the Earth moving through this cloud of dust and particles and little bits of rock and that's what gives rise to the meteor shower, not the cloud of dust moving across the Earth. That's that's very true. I mean, you know, OK, from the Earth's perspective, that's that's what's happening. But you're right. I mean, it's the Earth moving around the sun and the, and the cloud of material is in orbit around the, the sun as well. It tends to stretch out along a trail. And this one is connected with a comet that was seen about uh, 500 years ago, actually, and, and, with a, and seems to be connected with a, an asteroid that we can see today. And the Earth runs into that at the same time each year because it takes us a year to go around the sun. And that's why we see this uh, showers on more or less the same date each year. Exactly how good they are depends on how thick a bit of the cloud we go through. If you go through a very dense clump, then you can get a more spectacular display than otherwise. So that, you know, you can actually, from the rate of meteors, find out something about the distribution of these dust clouds in the solar system. Robert Massey, who will be back with more next month. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come, we'll explore the chemical composition of an exploding star, as well as take on more of your space science questions. But first, Carolyn Crawford sheds some light on what else has been hitting the space science headlines this month. Well, there's been a paper in the journal Nature that was issued earlier this month detailing the discovery of the two most massive black holes yet found, which is, I find, very interesting. It's kind of in line with various predictions but actually finding these is quite an important step now just to backtrack a bit you get two kinds of black holes you've got the ones that result from the gravitational collapse of a very massive star one much more massive than our sun maybe 20 30 times the mass of our sun and these form stellar sized black holes and you get these all through the spiral arms of our galaxy for example 
Then you have the supermassive black holes, which are entirely different beasts. They sit at the cores of the galaxies. And, for example, there's one that's about four million times the mass of ours sit, sitting at the centre of our Milky Way and at the centre of Andromeda. Both of these are dormant black holes, so they're not actively accreting. And then you also get examples where they are actively accreting, say, in distant quasars when the universe was a lot younger. And these are a completely different kettle of fish because they aren't formed like that they grow with the galaxy over time. You have some seed, they accrete matter, they accrete stars and gas, even potential little matter from other galaxies that might fall in. They grow along with the galaxy. That's how they obtain these enormous masses sitting there at the core. So the previous biggest uh, supermassive black hole was about 6.7 billion times the mass of our sun in a giant galaxy near to us called M87. Now, the two new black holes are each now getting on for 10 billion times the mass of our sun. And both of these also lie in giant galaxies, both around 300 million light years away from us. But the interesting thing is these are in what are known as central cluster galaxies. They sit right at the core of conglomerations. Have you got sort of thousands of galaxies within maybe a few tens of millions of light years? So these are in a very unique place. This it's very uh, privileged position right at the centre of this cluster. And it's long been thought there've been a variety of theories saying that as soon as you've got a giant galaxy right in the middle of the centre of the cluster, the growth of its black hole is going to be faster than in smaller galaxies like the Milky Way and Andromeda. This is the first time that we're beginning to see this difference. And actually, the discovery of these objects means that we can start doing theoretical calculations to see how we the observations, the range of masses of the galaxies versus the mass of the black holes they host fit with our various models of black hole and galaxy growth because it's something that happens in symbiosis that happens together. I assume there is a, a, a direct proportionality between the size of a black hole and the size of the galaxy it, it resides in. So the bigger galaxies are going to have the bigger black holes. Yes, in, uh, that, that's true. Once you get above galaxies of a certain mass, there is this, this direct proportionality between the size of the black hole and the galaxy it's in. Or if it's a spiral galaxy, say the bulge, the, the central bulge of the galaxy it's in. The point, though, is that that proportionality or that relationship only carries up to a certain mass of galaxy. These really big central cluster galaxies, the relationships start to change, which shows that there's something else going on. And that's the exciting thing, that they don't just continue the trend. It's saying some other process is kicking in. And we think that's unique to the cluster environment that it's in. And so that's also why it's, it's interesting to get this confirmation. And how do you spot a black hole? How can you tell that there is this enormously massive thing in there and work out how big it is? Well, obviously, if it's dormant, so not actively accreting things, you can look right down to the core. So like with our Milky Way and Andromeda, you look at the effect it has on objects around it. So you, the way that the black hole pulls stars or even disks of gas in orbit around it, and you look at the motions of stuff it has in orbit around it, and that's usually the best way to tell both. Uh, you get an idea of the size and the mass of the object that's exerting the gravity of them. Thank you, Carolyn. And Dominic, what else have you got for us this month? As we're coming to understand the solar wind better and we're understanding coronal mass ejections better, we can start to think about how they interact with the planets when they collide with them. And there have been some interesting computational simulations this month from NASA looking at how coronal mass ejections might interact with the Moon's surface when they collide. Now, obviously, the Moon has minimal atmosphere, so these particles can get right down to the surface of the Moon 
and potentially knock material off. And the conclusion of these computational simulations was that you might actually knock off somewhere between 100 and 200 tonnes of lunar dust in a single coronal mass ejection. So that's really quite a prodigious amount of material coming off, and that might explain why the Moon has the very tenuous atmosphere it does have, because that is coming from the vapours of these dust particles which are being blown off the Moon's surface. The other thing you can do to extend these simulations is to think about how coronal mass ejections might interact with other planets, like, for example, Mars. Mars doesn't have a magnetic field to deflect the solar wind, and so its upper atmosphere is subject to the full force of the solar wind. And that might explain why Mars has so little atmosphere, because the solar wind has been essentially blowing this atmosphere away. Now, the real test for these simulations will come in a couple of years' time with the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, which is a mission that NASA hoped to launch in 2013. So it will be interesting to see how these predictions stand up. And now, supernovae have been hot topics here on the Naked Astronomy podcast recently, and it's not hard to see why. These enormous stellar explosions are key to our understanding of how the universe has developed. To find out more about a recent discovery, Andrew Ponson spoke to Mark Sullivan from Oxford University. Mark, what is a supernova and why should we be interested in them? Well, supernovae are exploding stars and there are two basic types of supernovae in the universe. There are the deaths of very big, very massive stars and then the deaths of quite small, quite compact stars. And they're exciting beyond astronomy, I think, for two reasons. The first is that pretty much all the heavy elements in the universe are either made in supernovae or recycled into space in supernovae. So everything that we're made of on the Earth originated in a star and was then passed into the rest of space via a supernova explosion. But the reason that we're interested in uh, another class of supernovae is that they're very good cosmological candles. They're called standard candles, and we can use them to map out the geometry of the universe and say things about the fate of the universe and the origin of the universe. Now, a standard candle is something that is always the same brightness, like a 60-watt bulb or something. So why should we expect supernovae to always be the same brightness, even though stars themselves come in a range of brightnesses? These particular types of supernovae are the explosions of white dwarf stars. Now, a white dwarf star, which is made of carbon and oxygen, has a a maximum mass that it can attain before it undergoes a thermonuclear explosion. And that means that every time one of these supernovae explode, we know that we're dealing with the same amount of nuclear fuel, and hence you get the same amount of energy created in the explosion. And so usually the same or similar luminosities or brightnesses. And so that makes them excellent standardisable candles. Okay, you've been working hard on a recent supernova that happened in the relatively nearby galaxy M101. And when it was announced that that this supernova had been discovered, it caused quite a stir. So why is this particularly significant? It was quite nearby. It was only about 20 million light years away. And we also found the supernova very, very soon after explosion. So but we, we caught it within 12 hours of the time that it exploded. And that's very exciting. It allows us to see the signatures of the star that blew up in the observations of the supernova 
that we make. And that's something that we haven't been able to do before because we've never caught supernovae this early. So what kind of things have you actually seen then in, in these new kind of signatures you've been able to look at? So this supernova was one of those that we can use for cosmology. So that means we think that the, the star that blew up was made mostly of carbon and oxygen. But that's just a theory. We haven't been able to test that until now. But what we could do here was because we caught the supernova so early, we could take a spectrum which disperses the light of the supernova. And when you look in that spectrum, you can see certain chemical signatures of the elements that were uh, part of the star that blew up. And we can see signatures of the carbon and the oxygen from the star that blew up. So this is, I think, the first definitive proof that it is indeed a carbon oxygen, a star composed of carbon and oxygen that blows up. So that's very important for understanding why supernovae are the brightness that they are. The second very exciting thing is that we also, because we caught the supernova so early, we caught it in a phase of its light curve where we can extrapolate back to say how big the star that blew up was. And we can say that the star that blew up was less than one-tenth the size of the, the sun. And so that means you've got to get all of this mass into a very, very small amount of space. And so that means that it was probably a white dwarf that blew up. Again, if I understand correctly, the way we think these explosions are triggered is by mass coming off a companion star that's orbiting round the star that actually blows up. So is there any evidence in this case that that is, in fact, what's happened? So the, the, the exciting thing about this supernova was that it blew up in a very well-studied galaxy. So the Hubble Space Telescope has looked at this galaxy quite a lot in the past. And so we could go back and look at images from before the supernova exploded, and we could locate the position of the supernova on those images very precisely. And so we could see if we could actually see the star that blew up. And it turns out that we couldn't see anything at the supernova position. And so that actually rules out certain types of companion stars to the white dwarf that blew up. And in this case, it rules out a very luminous progenitor companion, such as a red giant. And so that appears to uh, falsify one of the channels for producing a type 1a supernova. And so that's you know, quite an interesting result. It's one of the, the holy grails of one of the research goals of people that work on supernova, trying to understand what the progenitors of these are, so we can rule out some classes of, of the model. Mark Sullivan talking to Andrew Ponson. Andrew also answered this question from Chris Martin. Is the universe older than we think? It's crucial that we have to take into account not just the current expansion rate, but the detailed history of the way the universe has expanded. We can do that using Einstein's theory of general relativity because that's able to link the contents of the universe to the uh, way in which it expands, the, the, the way in which the rate changes over time. So if you take what we think the contents of the universe is together with a measurement of the current rate of expansion, you can put all that together, uh, push it through equations known as the, the Friedman equation, which, as I say, comes from Einstein's general relativity, and that gives you our current best estimate, which is around about 13.8 billion years. Now, what it also tells you is that the universe hasn't always expanded at the same rate, and, in fact, it goes through various different stages the most important two of those are what we call the matter domination stage and the dark energy domination stage. The most recent of those is the dark energy domination stage where the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating because of this uh, unknown force that we call dark energy. But prior to that, there was the matter domination phase 
where the universe behaved as though it had just matter in it. And at that time, the expansion of the universe was slowing down. So, oddly, the combination of these two effects, one where the expansion of the universe slows down and one where the expansion of the universe is speeding up, roughly cancels out at the present time in, in, in the sense that if you did a naive calculation where you just try to extrapolate back the age of the universe using only the current expansion rate and pretending you were ignorant of the fact the expansion rate had changed, you would actually get about the same answer as we do using this more sophisticated approach. And concentrating on cosmic history, Carolyn answered this one from Tom Bristola. If more distant galaxies are moving quicker, does that mean the universe expanded faster in the past? So you're right. The galaxies that are furthest away from us do appear to be moving faster. And this is a signature of the expansion of the universe. In fact, there's a relationship known as Hubble's law, which is one of the, the first main lines of evidence that the universe is expanding. And this is saying that a galaxy twice as far away moves away from us twice as fast. And it's just basically to do because of there being twice as much space between us and it to expand. So between us and a nearby galaxy, if that space doubles, a galaxy twice as far away, you've got not just the space between the near galaxy, but also the space between the galaxies that's going to double. And so in the same time, it's moved twice as far away. It means it's moving twice as fast. And so it's not a reflection of the fact that they were moving faster in the past. It's just a reflection that there's that much more space between us and it that has spread and expanded and has just shoved the galaxy further away from us faster. So this ties into the fact that the expansion is not a property of, of the mass, it's not a property of the, the galaxy that we're looking at, it's a property of the space in between us and that galaxy. And this is such a key point that is often lost when you talk about these analogies of you know expanding balloons or whatever. Space is expanding and it's pulling the galaxies along for the ride. So the space is what is pushing the expansion and the galaxies are what are being moved by it. It's not a case of galaxies moving through space, but the space itself expanding. And finally for this month, Deval Fisser asks how you measure the speed of a spacecraft, and I put it to Dominic Ford. Well, it's absolutely right that to measure the speed of anything, you have to have some reference that you're measuring that speed with respect to. So when you're driving down the road, that frame will be your surroundings around you on the road. When you're travelling through the solar system, the most convenient reference to use is the Earth because you're continually in radio communication with the Earth and you can use those radio waves to measure, first of all, how far away the spacecraft is and then by looking at what direction in the sky those waves are coming from, you can measure what direction that spacecraft is in. Now, those are two very different problems and so when you're trying to work out where a spacecraft is, you want to do two things. You want to measure its distance, which is comparatively easy because you know how fast light travels and you can time how long your radio communications take. But you also want to know what direction it is in the sky. And that's very much more difficult. It might sound easy to just look up at the sky and see where something is. But if you want to have the precision of a few metres to know where that spacecraft is, then you need to make an incredibly precise measurement of the position in the sky and for that you need a very large radio telescope and it's going to cost you quite a lot to get the time on the large telescope to make that measurement. In fact this has been an issue for NASA in the past. If you look at the causes of the failure of Mars Climate Orbiter 
which was supposed to enter orbit around Mars in 1998 and in fact crashed into the surface of Mars. Now, the media presented the reason for that crash as being a confusion between imperial and metric units. But in fact, there were quite a few management problems on that mission. It was around the time that NASA were using the phrase faster, better, cheaper, and they were cutting down their ground support operations. But the spacecraft was only being tracked in the one dimension of its distance from the Earth, and that was being used to know where the spacecraft was. And although the ground support team knew that there was something anomalous happening there and the spacecraft didn't quite seem to where it ought to be, they didn't then go on and make the measurements of where it was in the sky to be able to pin down exactly what the problem was. And had those measurements been made, it would probably have been possible to have saved the mission. So that's all we have for 2011. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. And keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. And you can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. From all of us here at Naked Astronomy, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. <laughs>